stealing tea from China, high wine, and a curry made with iguana. This week, we're talking to the Taste of Empire author, Lizzie Collingham. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. I'm your host, Brent Peterson. Thanks for listening. And if you're new to the podcast, let me tell you a little bit about it. Each week, we travel to a different spot on this globe and check out a different food or a different drink or the kind of food culture that you'll experience in that place. This week, it's a little different because we're all over the world. We're in China and we're in uh, South America and we're in England talking with Lizzie Collingham. Lizzie is an associate fellow at the University of Warwick. She's a very smart lady, and she's also a very prolific author. She's written books like Curry, A Taste of Cooks and Conquerors, Taste of War, World War II and the Battle for Food, and her most recent book, The Taste of Empire, How Britain's Quest for Food Shaped the Modern World. And this is something that's I feel like right in my wheelhouse. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know I'm fascinated with how foods get from one place to another and how they evolve over time. And I've spent quite a bit of time talking about these ideas on the podcast. And I feel like I've spent a lot of time with the Portuguese Empire and the Spanish Empire talking about how they influenced foods that have traveled around the world. And maybe not as much with the... British Empire, who, of course, had a gigantic empire for a couple hundred years and, you know, super influential on the New World and, um, you know, North America and Central America and South America, but also as far away as India and the Philippines and lots of other places. And um, Lizzie and I talk about all of this stuff, and it's a fascinating conversation that I really think that you'll enjoy. And in this episode, we also uh, talk about a couple of things that I've spoken about in earlier episodes. Um, we mentioned Liverpool, and Lizzie's got just a great take on Liverpool. If you want to hear more about Liverpool, I did a whole episode about Liverpool. That's episode 10 of the podcast. We also talk a little bit about uh, Lima, Peru, and I did a whole episode about Lima. That's episode 55, and you can get both of those episodes. I'll put links to those in the show notes. And the easiest way to get the show notes is go to radiomisfits.com and go to Destination Eat Drink, and you can find the show notes there. And if you enjoy the show, I would ask that you go to your favorite podcast platform, wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcast or Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever, and rate and review the podcast. It only takes a minute or two, but if you enjoy the podcast, please do so. It's incredibly helpful to get the word out on Destination Eat Drink. Destination Eat Drink. Lizzie, your latest book is called The Taste of Empire, How Britain's Quest for Food Shaped the Modern World. And I love this book. It's so unique. I don't think anyone's ever attempted something quite like this before. Can you talk about the concept behind the Taste for Empire? 
Um, I guess I'm. I've been, for a long time. I've been interested in empire and food. So I wrote my PhD on um, the British body in India. And I wrote how you use the body as an instrument of power and rule and so on. And out of that, I grew. Uh, my interest in food grew, and I wrote a book about the history of curry, which is really a British invention. It's sort of a British interpretation of Indian food, and so empire is kind of my home. But um, one of the things that annoys me is that British historians or, or or kind of more in a popular kind of understanding of British history, we like to talk grandly about our empire and how we had an empire and beat the drum. But we don't, I think lots of British people don't really understand how empire shaped their world, their society, British society. And so in a way, it was grown out of an interest in that. And it's how a society secures its food supply is really important. It has a really powerful impact on its structure. And that's really obvious if you think about hunter-gatherers, you know, or people who spend 90% of their time growing food in the, you know, in the bush or whatever. So that makes, obviously, food is really important and structures how they uh, relate to each other and social society and, and women and men's relationships. But it's not so obvious when you get to modern societies. And in a way, I wanted to kind of show that it is still an underlying structuring feature and that how Britain chose to get its food supply and how it secured its food for its population affected and altered and shaped its society. So that's kind of where the book comes from. I think what we think of when we think of empires, maybe especially the British Empire, it's bringing the British culture around the world to these other places, bringing British culture to the colonies, bringing British culture to India, things like that. And we don't think in terms of what these other places bring back to India or uh, bring back to England. And that's really kind of a central point in the book, right? Some of these things that come from other places back to Britain rather than what Britain is exporting to other places. Britain's food world is shaped basically by stealing food from other places or adopting food. So tea, which we all think of as a, you know, the British drink, we're always drinking tea. So of iconic. course, it's a Chinese. Yeah, exactly. It's iconic, but it's 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 a Chinese herbal drink, and it was the Chinese. You know, it's iconic for the Chinese. It's and we took it and we then uh, grew grew it in India and then. Started up all the tea plantations in India and then in East Africa and so on, and sort of made it our drink. But it's somebody else's curry. You know, people like to talk about the fact that chicken tikka masala took over from fish and chips, which, by the way, was a Jewish um, introduction to Britain <laughs> anyway in the first place. Oh, so um, interesting. And exactly. So, so Britain is basically all these foods that we think of as essentially British are basically adoptions, cultural adaptions, taking uh, ideas and food into society. But it's, it's more than that. It's also, you know, the fact that we went and um, uh, had had an empire, grew sugar in in the Caribbean and so on, that shaped shopping. So you, you get shops, little shops uh, springing up. Up until the 18th century, there were no little shops. You know, the village shop, which we think of as quintessentially British, didn't exist. So people went to markets and fairs, but they weren't little shops. But as a result of the colonial products, so tobacco, sugar, tea coming into Britain, little shops started opening in people's front rooms and stuff, selling these little colonial products as a screw of tobacco at a time, you know, in really tiny quantities. And out of that, you get changes in retail and shopping. The Industrial Revolution is 
it um, grows out of a desire of people to to have these products so they become more industrious they work harder you need sugar refineries for the sugar coming in so then you need people who make little uh, the iron pots and it's all because it's all feeds into its each other and kind of creates a, a political a social a cultural uh, network of forces on British society and that shape it and it's not it, it is coming from the outside it's, it's that encounter with the outside world which really does shape the society. I want to ask you one more go back to the tea for just one minute because you yeah. said something that really kind of stuck in my head for a moment there you said that the Chinese of course the Chinese started the tea they, this is where the tea plants originally grew and mm. you said the British brought then the tea plants to India my assumption always was and uh, I, I never studied this I never looked into this it was just an assumption since India is so close to China that it tea just kind of migrated into India that way and are, are you saying that the British were the ones who actually brought the tea plants to India yeah so basically at some point the, the, the East India Company in the early 19th century are very worried because they are aware that the government is probably going to take away their monopoly and stop them being having a monopoly over tea sales so they're worried that that will mean that there'll be lots of competitors going into China and buying tea and that they'll lose their main um, tea makes them the most money so their main source of income so they start looking around for other places they could source their own tea and a chap wandering through Assam does notice that there is and in fact in tea is indigenous to Assam uh, it does grow there you're right it's sort of come over that it's on the border but with China and okay. it is there but but it's not you know, it's not a commercial plant uh -huh. and they don't, they experiment a bit with growing it. It doesn't really work. They don't really know how to make tea anyway. So they send this guy to China to steal tea plants because the Chinese obviously don't want tea, <sighs> tea plants or knowledge about how to make tea to get out. So they, he brings back seedlings They They transplant them. It takes them a while. And they also bring a, a bunch of Chinese people so that they pick up in Calcutta, like, so the Chinese um, obviously migrate and there are shoemakers and carpenters from China living in Calcutta and they bring them up to the Assam tea plantations and say, can you help us make the tea? And of course, they haven't got a clue how to make tea either. So it's all a bit of a disaster <laughs> at first. But eventually they learn how to make tea They and they they make, they grow, it becomes hybrid. It's a hybrid tea, actually. It's the Assamese plant hybrid with the Chinese tea plant and then that you get Indian tea plantations and that's how it all starts and by the 1870s they are successfully growing tea that they can market in Britain uh, in India and at that point so 10% say of tea drunk in Britain is 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 um, Indian and 90% is kind of China, comes from China by the 1900s so 30 years later 10% comes from China 90% is coming from India Huge they completely swap it yeah We'll think about that the next time we have a cup of tea a cup of uh, English breakfast <laughs> tea or Earl Grey um <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to talk about one of your specific chapters. So your book is divided into chapters and The Taste of Empire focuses on individual stories throughout the world. And one of the most interesting is this chapter about something called Iguana Curry and it takes place <laughs> in Guyana. And we're talking about 
iguanas, the the little animals that run around. Um, yeah. And curry, the dish that you talked about earlier. So I don't want to say anything else. It's your story, Lizzie. Talk about iguana curry. Okay, so there's this lovely scene. Um, each of my chapters is, starts with a, a meal, a real meal, and then because then, I think meals tell a story. So here are some Afro-Guyanese um, diamond miners, and they they all have really. This is a this is a story told to me by a friend of mine, Terry Rupnerain, who was an anthropologist. He was working on diamond miners in uh, and gold mining in in um, Ghana in the, Guyana in the 1990s. And so he told me about this occasion when he he joined some people on a Sunday morning, and they all these Afro Guyanese diamond miners have amazing names, nicknames. So one was called Bushman, another was called Spider. There was Tallboy, who of course was short, and Crab Dog. And so they're all sitting around in a rum shop having what he calls a lime. So a lime is when you kind of sit around and aimlessly chat and drink and stuff. So they're all kind of sitting around having this lime with a, with a bottle of rum and the levels going down. And they talk about, you know, good strikes or when they were out of money and hard up and all of those kind of things. And as the level of the rum goes down, they start talking about sex and prostitution and all the rest of it. Anyway, finally, one of them says, I caught an iguana yesterday. Uh, um, and they say, oh, let's cook him. So he takes the iguana, chops it up, and basically asks the guy in the rum shop if he can use his kitchen. He's a friend. So he says, okay, fine. And he chops up some onions, fries them in butter, adds some curry powder, throws in the iguana chopped up maybe some water good glug of what they call high wine which is a very very um strong spirit made with sugar um juice and uh, and then leaves it to cook and they all cook the curry and eat it and then wander off home to have sleep it off because they're <laughs> and so basically <laughs> the question is what on earth are afro-guyanese diamond miners doing cooking uh iguana curry i've got my friend had pictures of the igu iguana curries and they're really horrible kind of you can see their little paws sticking up oh. it's really sad <laughs> <laughs> I know. anyway so what are they doing cooking this thing and so obviously the first the first part of the story um begins it begins with sugar begins with the fact that the Portuguese brought sugar over to the New World and started plantations in, in Brazil. And then when British settlers uh, tried to start a colony on Barbados, they eventually tried all kinds of things. They grew tobacco and the tobacco was rubbish and that they got letters of complaint saying, this is rubbish, can't you find something else? And, so on. and eventually one of them went to Brazil, picked up on sugar, bought the sugar, came back, worked how, how to grow it by with the help of some Dutch and sugar within a few years sugar takes off on Barbados and it's completely revolutionizes the British Empire so sugar becomes this huge product which is flowing into Britain and then when they uh, acquire more land and more territories in the Caribbean they take sugar and of course the people who are growing it it starts off they use indentured laborers, actually. They use vagrants and poor people, white people in Britain who they pick up and ship over. And eventually, but eventually they start using slaves just as the Portuguese do. And they, they import, and that's the beginning of, sort of the British, well, the British are already engaged in the slave trade. And it's 
then there's this enormous slave trade. I did an episode way back when about uh, Liverpool on... Uh, oh, yeah. On, yeah, and... That was where I learned about these guys. There's there are like tunnels in Liverpool that lead down to the docks, and about these guys that would just basically grab people off the streets, toss them, you know, people who were, like you said, vagrants, grab them off the streets, toss them on the boat, and hey, you're an indentured servant now in the in exactly. the new world. It's absolutely appalling, and and actually Cromwell as well. He he uses um a lot of um political prisoners during the uh, war with Ireland. Oh, he wow. he defeats Ireland, and then he has all these Irish political prisoners. And the in de- the point is about normally even the vagrants they were sent off, but they after five years they could come home or they could get land, but. The political prisoners are Barbados, as they called it. They're sent out to Barbados to be um, servants or indented laborers, and they can't come home. It's awful. It's really terrible. Wow. But there's nothing compared to what they do to the African slaves. Yeah, then it gets worse. So that's how the Africans end up, West Africans end up in Guyana. That's the the, the, the Guyanese mi- diamond miners are descendants of the slaves. But how do they come to be eating and cooking curry. That, uh, the answer to that is in 1838, slavery ends. You're no longer allowed to um, import slaves into British territories. And that's a problem because Britain has come to depend on its sugar, not just because it's nice and, you know, everybody craves sugar and likes it, but because in actual fact, the industrial working classes rely on sugar for their energy. So what happens is, um, so in the 18th, by the 18th century, sugar prices have dropped really quite low because enough sugar is coming in for it to, there's enough supply so that the prices can, can drop. And that, and at the same time, the uh, industrial, the, the 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 farm laborers working on the land, um, agriculture's going through a bad patch. They're paid very little. They and the problem is they can no longer afford to buy things like cheese and meat and all those good things that they could afford when, at the beginning of the 18th century, when farming was doing well and they got good wages so what they tend to do is and they can't buy firewood so firewood becomes very expensive and so they can't really afford to cook a meal so they tend to buy in or bake their own bread so they tend to buy in shop-bought bread and they can't really afford to brew their own beer anymore because if you want to brew beer you need good quality firewood otherwise it kind of it is not it's not good it, the beer doesn't work and also it takes a lot of firewood to kind of heat up the wort and all the rest of it to brew the beer so what they do is they they turn to tea and they put an awful lot of sugar in the tea so it's very very strong black tea very very sweetened and that gives them a lot of energy to work and then the farm laborers as the industrial revolution gets takes off they take that diet shop bought bread sweetened tea into the industrial um, cities. And that's kind of what the working class is in Britain. That's the base food that they're eating. Of course, they have a bit of bacon or a bit of cheese when they can afford it. And there's a bit of meat right, if right. they can afford it and so on. But that's the base food that everybody's eating. So sugar is incredibly important to the British. So when the slaves, when slavery is abolished, that affects the 
the sugar plantations and they, they, they're worried that their supply of sugar is going down. So they need a good supply of labor, cheap, docile labor. So where do they go? They go and look in India and they find in India um, an alternative workforce. And they, at that point, India's textile trade is slumping because Manchester cottons grown in Manchester are coming into India and they're a lot cheaper than Indian textiles. And so they're kind of putting all the Indian weavers and artisans out of work. They're all on the, on the road looking for work. People go out, agents go out, pick up these people and, and, and take them to be indentured laborers to the sugar plantations. And that's how you get all the Indians in Jamaica and 240,000 um, are imported into, uh, taken to Guyana to work in the sugar plantations. That's how you get the influx of Indians around the world. Holy cow. <laughs> so that's how curry comes to Guyana, right? Right. So that's the curry, that's the curry uh, link. Yeah, except that it's more complicated than that because India has this incredibly rich, diverse, elaborate cuisine. Indian food is made by many Every dish is made very differently with different spices. You start by heating up the oil, putting in spices, adding ingredients, adding this spice, that spice, right? It's complicated, sophisticated cuisine. So the British want to replicate this. They want to replicate Indian food when they come home. And they, what they do is they tend to have a shorthand. So they look at the spices and then they make a, a standard curry a spice mix and call that, oh, curry powder, because they refer to all Indian food just as curry. Or it, what do Indians eat? They eat curry. No Indian would tell you they're eating curry. They'd say they're eating a rush, uh, rogan josh, or a, whatever. Right. Right, but right. Um, but but the British think they're eating curry, so they invent in a way curry powder. So it's just a spice mix. And when they want to bring food for the Guyanese for for the Indian indentured laborers in Guyana, they import for them rice and they bring them curry powder made in Madras, and so. The indentured laborers can't make the complex dishes that they used to make at home. They can own, they're reduced to kind of making a British version of curry where you fry the onions in butter and put, put in curry powder and then put in the meat or whatever. And so that's the kind of curry powder, that's the kind of curry that the Guyanese and African uh, diamond miners are making. But they there's an added twist because... When the Africans escape slavery, they go inland in Guyana. They go into the forests. They, they look for gold. They look for diamonds. And there they meet the indigenous people who teach them how to uh, catch and cook uh, wild meat like iguana. And it's kind of that tastes kind of gamey and quite strong. Right. And what they do is they put in a glug of the high wine, this uh, sugarcane spirit, to take away the gamey taste. And that's how you get in Guyana, a curry that is made not only with curry powder, but also with this high wine, this, 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 and bush meat. So that's how the whole meal comes together. And so you have this really distinctive way of cooking. And it's, it's an amalgamation of influences from all over the world. And that's kind of basically food is generally, meals are generally like that. And that's kind of what I wanted to get at with the book. And so that's why I really like this meal, because all these processes are coming together to create this thing. And if you start unpicking it, you can start to see where it's all coming from. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. You know, I, 
I, I don't know that I'm going to be trying iguana curry anytime soon, but mm. I, I think I want to try this high wine. See what it sounds like a <laughs> Guyanese um, uh, moonshine of some sort. But yeah, it, yeah. I mean, my friend who was telling me about this in Oxford, where we happened to be talking, we were there was a little um, sort of alcohol shop nearby and they did actually sell it. So you should have a look if little specialist alcohol shops in, in America, they oh, might okay. sell it. Yeah, yeah, I'll look for it. You know, <laughs> this also this other this dish reminds me. This iguana curry reminds me of when I was talking to a woman from uh, Lima, Peru, and Lima, of course, uh-huh. is is now a, a big culinary capital of South America. They've got tons of Michelin starred restaurants, and they said one of the one of the cuisines that is starting to become very popular is uh, Amazon cuisine. And I think uh-huh. this is kind of what it sounds like to me. It's, you know, some of the wild game meat that you get from going into the forest and foraging, mm. you know, um, uh, iguana meat for, you know, for lack of uh, exactly. a different one. So it's it's fascinating that this is coming around now because you have to imagine that the indigenous people of the Amazon have been eating it for millennia. I think it's interesting, though, that because they also it's they it's they who them who add the high wine. So they think, oh, this is a good I wonder what they they may have used something else before the sugar plantations come along and 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 brew this stuff. Yeah. But to get the gaminess out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, somebody who was an expert on that kind of food would probably have an answer to that. So that's very interesting. Sounds like uh, maybe the next book for you. But <laughs> you have you have an, you actually have another book coming out, Lizzie, uh, in the fall. It's about uh, biscuits, what people in England, what we call in the U.S. cookies. Uh, one of my That's favorite right. topics. I love cookies. Um, <laughs> give me give me a little taste of what the biscuits book. Well, what's the title of it? First of all, it's called um, the biscuit: a history of a very British, the history of a very British indulgence. So it's about how the biscuit becomes, because biscuits start as um, bourgeois things, really. They're eaten by, uh, well, in fact, they they start, uh, sugary biscuits, that is, start as part of a banquet. So that in the 17th century, you might eat biscuits at the end of a meal, which would, and they would have, they're not like biscuits that we think of, like cookies that at all. They would have coriander and aniseed in them, okay. and they were eaten as kind of digestives to, to settle the stomach uh, uh, at the end of a meal, which is why I guess they're still called digestives. So, um, so that's how biscuits come in, and it's all about how they t- they transform from being this kind of bourgeois elite food into becoming something which is democratic and eaten by everybody, including uh, the working classes. And that doesn't really happen until after the Second World War. So that's what that book is about. And and um, I'm considering changing it and telling it uh, for America a little bit with the, where I talk about the cookies and stuff, but I haven't, I haven't sold that yet. So I don't know whether I'll write that. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting that that happened so late that cookies, biscuits didn't come into popular culture until after world war two. I figured it would have been once sugar prices dropped and sugar became available to everyday people in Britain that then the biscuits would become available, but it sounds like it's, it's much later. How, how do you attribute that? Partly because um, biscuits become a very popular thing, I guess, once they are made industrially. 
And Hunley okay, and Palmer's right. in Reading are the big firm that make industrial biscuits. And, and they start, they open their factory in 1846. And um, the point about them is, you know, it's, it's still quite expensive, however, to make biscuits at that point. So I guess for, um, let me think, a pound of ginger nuts, would be, which would probably be their cheapest biscuit, would be about six pence for a pound. But if you think about it, the working classes, that six pence is a lot of money. You, you know, you'd be using six, six pence for um, what would that buy you? You know, you might need that extra sixpence that if you after your rent and your food to buy your kids' shoes or something like that. You're not going to spend it on biscuits, right? Industrially, so something so it's frivolous. Not until, yeah, it's frivolous and it's not necessary. And you know, these people are kind of really um, making do and living with clogs. And you know, so biscuits are just out of their reach. They don't become cheap enough until late in the 19th century and really democratic until after the Second World War. It's about price. And the the biscuit factories, okay, they have a surplus, right? Because they're making this product democratically, uh, or mass producing a product, but they're not selling it at mass pr produced prices. So they uh, sell their surplus abroad, so they get export them. In fact, Huntley and Palmer's take over the American biscuit market. So for a long time, they dominate the American market, and they're selling to middle classes around the empire. Huntley and Palmer's are everywhere, all the, through the world. In fact, they boast that, you know, in every corner of the globe, you'll find Huntley and Palmer's biscuits and so on. So they sell their surplus to uh, richer people around the world. And it's not until later when you get competing firms that come in and make cheaper biscuits that they become available to everybody. It's a different story in America. It's a different story. They democratize earlier in America. So it's an interesting story. So I hope I will get to tell that. Okay, good. Because, yeah, it seems like in America they've been around forever. Of course, I haven't been around since World War II, but, you know, cookies seem Late 19th like... century. Okay. I'd say late 19th, early early 20th century they started, so a little bit earlier in, in America. Almost 50 years. I mean, that's significant when you're talking about industrialization, I think. Yeah, it is. We'll look forward to seeing your book about biscuits, and we'll have links to all of your books in the show notes so that people can check those out. Lizzie, it's been... Great talking to you, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to reading your book about biscuits when that comes out in the fall. And uh, congratulations on this wonderful book, The Taste of Empire. It's just been great having you on uh, Destination Eat Drink today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You know, after talking to Lizzie, I was so inspired. I went to my local Kroger, and wouldn't you know it, they were all out of fresh iguana. And I'm certainly not going to stoop to buying canned iguana, so... That recipe is just going to have to wait, I guess. Thanks to Lizzie for being on the podcast. And there you are, another episode of Destination Eat Drink in the books for you. While you're waiting for next week's show, go to DestinationEatDrink.com. Lots of material there, including my latest entry on the blog. It's about Christmas. Not, not the holiday, but the topping you get on dishes in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hatch chilies, green chilies, New Mexico chilies. It's all there on this latest blog post. Just go to destinationeatdrink.com, click on the blog tab. Next Friday on the podcast, we'll be talking with Mark Walter of Walter's World, the extraordinarily popular YouTube channel. Mark's been all over the world and he talks to us about wine from Uruguay and 
given the finger in Buenos Aires. Don't worry, it's not what you think. And stinky feet cheese in the Czech Republic, plus lots of other stuff. Mark is a funny and fascinating storyteller, so he'll be on the podcast next week. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the good folks at the Radio Misfits Podcast Network, including head honcho Ed Silla. Hat tip to Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and until next week, I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.